Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Bread Beauty Supply, Maver Heim. Visibility is a word that came up a few times during this particular conversation with Maeva. She tells me that her early career ambitions, none of which involved the beauty industry despite growing up in and around her mother's hair salon, were more a matter of proximity than anything. Growing up in Perth meant that very few large head offices were in her peripherals, so unaware that corporate careers in beauty did exist, Maeva initially turned her attention to other industries. She also tells me that her relationship with her hair was influenced by visibility. Maeva had spent the bulk of 20 years using a chemical hair relaxer to straighten out the natural texture of her hair, explaining to me that the bulk of the hair education that we receive in mainstream culture is designed for straight hair. It wasn't until a trip to the US during which her hair relaxer exploded in her luggage that she decided to move back towards her natural hair texture. She wasn't alone in embracing what's called the natural hair movement. At that time, there'd been over a 40% decline of hair relaxer sales over a five-year period. A simple, effective, modern beauty offering for women of colour wasn't particularly visible either. In a time that Maeva has coined as pre-Fenty, there were even fewer brands catering to women of colour than there are now. And there were absolutely no simple, effective, fun, nor modern options in the hair care category. Confident in her idea to simplify wash day for women with textured hair, Bread Beauty Supply was born, a now six-month-old award-winning brand that launched into US Sephora, making it only the eighth black-owned beauty brand to be picked up by Sephora and the third in the hair space. It was during the development process that Maver made visibility work to her advantage. She explains that our exposure to other founder stories online today meant that she felt that she could do it too without fear, and that's exactly what she's done. In this conversation, Maver and I discuss how she secured investment from the same fund who invested in Emily Weiss's Glossier and Kim Kardashian's Skims, the challenges of launching a brand through an overseas retailer in 2020, and the makeup look her aunt in West Africa bestowed on her in childhood that may well be making a comeback. So I understand that your mother owned a hair salon in Perth, so I imagine that that will factor into your answer to this one. But what is your very earliest memory of beauty? Yes, so that was definitely some of my earliest memories being in the salon. But actually when I think about it, some of the earliest memories that I have that I are kind of like ingrained in my mind are when we would travel back to West Africa, where my mum's family is from, and my aunt would do my makeup. She loved like doing my makeup. Mm-hmm. How old <laughs> were my you? little face. Um, I'm going to say I was probably around six, mm-hmm. six, maybe between six and eight, uh, or maybe a little bit older. And she would have like, she would bring out her little makeup bag 
Um, and she would always do the same look like every single time. And it was really, really thick, drawn on black eyebrows. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Which Timeless. like, you know, I'm like, you know what? I, I need to go back and look at photos because that's, that's the vibe now. Yeah. Um, and then bright blue eyeshadow. Stunning. Lots of mascara and eyeliner and then a bright red lip. And I just remember it so distinctly. So just something subtle for every day, which is nice. Just a lovely everyday look to go down to the market. Um, but, yeah, I, I just really, I, I remember that a lot. And, and I, I can still, like, on a, even just, like, smell, like, the crayons that she used to use to draw my face with. And, um, like, her, you know, she would, like, lick her um thumb and then like rub things out you know when it's just like so visceral Mm -hmm. um so yeah that was definitely probably the earliest memory that I have that I remember so so well I mean you've just described the look that four-year-old Gemma was sporting for her dance (laughs) concert (laughs) the difference being that was to get on a stage under lights but this was just purely for every day (laughs) go down and (laughs) pick up some breakfast Mm. <laughs> loved it um an elegant course, day wear look <laughs> yeah and um I would yeah also go into my mum's salon as well um growing up um and I think at the time you know I, I didn't love it that much because I would have to be there so often when I didn't want to mm-hmm. but looking back now I'm obviously really grateful for the experience and and to kind of be surrounded by not just a lot of beauty product, but also customers, I think was quite informative for me. Um, And just the way that my mum kind of dealt with customer service and all sorts of different people that would come into that salon and, you know, it was in the middle of the city. So there was also, you know, problems with um, homelessness and um, just a, a whole plethora of different people that would get around. And she was friends with everybody. Like it didn't matter if you were coming in as a client, if you were a random person that, you know, would walk past the shop every day. Like she was just open and and kind to everybody. Um, and I think that that was, yeah, really informative for me growing up. That salon, that was one of the only African hair braiding salons in Perth and really in the country for that matter. I'm not sure if you can even answer this, but how? Like you can't have been the only family (laughs) with textured hair in the country. Where was everyone getting their hair done? I don't understand. Yeah, well, no, probably not. Although I will say that I think population-wise, immigration was a lot less back then. Sure. Um, And, you know, if you are an immigrant or an immigrant family, I mean, you would just get your hair done at home. Mm-hmm. Um, like your mum or your parents or whoever, your sister, your auntie, whoever would do your hair, but there were no, you know, professional salons that were providing that service. Um, and so the types of clientele that my mum would take was like anyone and everyone, you know, it was women, men, whoever, who had textured hair, but then there was also a lot of tourists as well um, who would come and get like dreadlocks or braids or whatever it might be. And so it became like a real destination. It was a real, um, you know, almost like cultural hub. Um, But, yeah, honestly, there's no way to fact check for the whole of Australia, but (laughs) that's what I I go with because, um, yeah, it it was certainly not as common back then. 
You went down the law, business, corporate sort of path when the time came, but when you were a child and you were spending all of that time in the salon, what did you think that you might be when you grew up? I had a few different jobs that I wanted to do. The two main ones, um, well, ultimately that was kind of like three or four, but the two main ones that I thought when I was younger was either a vet or an actress. Um, And so I did a bit of acting and whatnot as I was kind of in my youth yeah, to kind of pursue that as a path. Did a few random things, actually. My dad sent me a message yesterday of a photo um, and said, remember this film? And it was a photo of me um, in full makeup as a ghost. And the film was called Potato House. Um, (laughs) That's so weird that you didn't end up calling the brand that. I know, right? Amazing name, which is so funny because I often, I, I, I've been saying potato a lot lately, so I'm, I don't know what it is about. It's full circle. <laughs> really. And then I get this potato thing. I'm like, what What? Do, what do potatoes mean spiritually? I'm going to have to look mm. that up. Um, but, yeah, it was a vet or an actress. And, like, I loved animals, um, especially dogs. And, yeah, I, I really liked acting as well. Um, and, you know, did some indie films, did a couple of TV shows, Um and I don't think it was until I was maybe like a little bit older that I thought I wanted to become a lawyer instead, um, probably as I got, you know, further towards high school. Uh, but those were kind of the main ones. Beauty so was never on the radar. That was <laughs> going to be my next question. No ambitions to work in beauty, which I think is kind no. of the case if you grow up around it. People become a bit disillusioned with it. Yeah, I think so. And it was just never something that was on my radar at all. Um, And I think part of that was because of, you know, certain expectations around career and what you know um, Mm -hmm. when you're growing up and just not having the visibility of seeing that, you know, beauty could be a corporate career as well. Um, Growing up in Perth, there aren't so many head offices there for not just beauty, but even like consumer products. I had no idea what the world of consumer was or that, you know, you could work for craft or, (laughs) you know, Cadbury's or whatever at a marketing level and at a head office level. It wasn't something that I even knew. Um, And so I think not having that proximity just meant that I I limited my choices. Um, Yeah. It makes sense. You did spend some years working behind the scenes at L'Oreal Australia, obviously having moved. I have a few questions about this time. Firstly, a very broad one, but are there any lessons that you took from that period when your career was in its infancy that you find you're still applying to your work now? Yes, definitely a number of lessons. And I mean, you know, my experience at L'Oreal was both good and bad. And I think in any corporate role, people have, um, you know, a a combined um, kind of experience overall, but um, they're successful for a reason. Um, And even though, you know, there were parts of that experience that I absolutely hated, there were certainly things that I took away that I can apply now to my business. And that's probably the case for a lot of entrepreneurs who have worked in a corporate environment um, and then create their own business. And, And the benefit of that, I guess, is that you get to pick and choose. It's like, cool, I hated this part of the company culture and the way things worked, but I really liked this. And so, Um, you just get to pick out the best bits and then hopefully apply them to your company culture or the way that you work. Um, And I would say probably one of the main ones for me 
was the sense of responsibility. Um, and I think even as a junior employee, um, whether you're an intern or an assistant brand manager or whatever it is coming in at an entry level, you're still given so much responsibility and everything does come down to you. Like you're in charge, you're responsible for making sure that everything is perfect before it goes to your managers for approval rather than the other way around. Like it's not up to them to pick apart and, and find the typos or whatever it might be. Like it's up to you. Um, and you know, it, it takes a little while to get used to that, to get to the point mm. where you're, where you're like, well, no, you're the senior person. You should be telling me what to do versus no, no, no. I need to come to you with my thoughts and I need to come to you with work that I think is good. And that I'm happy with, um, so that I can defend it. Um, and then also just ultimately be responsible for the output. So I think that's definitely one of the biggest ones I took away and, and just that sense of, of ownership over something. And it may not necessarily be, you know, yours technically, but you really have to have that mindset of like, this is my brand, this is my baby and it's all down to me. On that, this is more, I guess, beauty industry specific, but you've talked in previous interviews about how during this time, that was when you became pretty acutely aware of the disconnect between what the beauty industry was offering and what women of colour actually wanted and needed to see on the shelves. I would love to hear more about that time and also just your experience of becoming aware of that disconnect. Yeah, I think it was it was kind of gradual. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I think initially I didn't necessarily see it because I thought, I'm a consumer. Everything here is, you know, it's directed at me as well. Um, And then over time, it's just like little things that kind of pile up when you get to the point where you realize, you know, this is a huge company. There's not a lot that they can do nimbly and they're trying to appeal to the masses. And that often means that women of color get left out of the conversation. Um, And so I think it just got to a point where I was like, they actually, it's not even just a matter of like wanting to do it. They actually can't. Um, in a way where, you know, someone who is creating an indie brand can, and you can be really close to that customer or that consumer that you're trying to serve. Um, And so, yeah, it was definitely a lot of little things that piled up. It was, you know, not being able to use a black model as the hero image in campaigns. And I think that that's a, it's a multifaceted issue. And one of the main ones being that, you know, we're in an Australian market where the majority of the population are white and these are brands that live in the mass market. And so, women of colour were always going to be left out of those decisions and and not at the forefront of um, the decision making. And so, yeah, it became quite a gradual thing where I got to the point where I was like, why am I spending 24 hours of my day <laughs> working um, for these brands that aren't even really speaking to me at all? Um, and so, yeah, that's when I decided I was I was going to leave and I just really kind of thought about it in the sense that I have absolutely nothing to lose. And if I want to see this change and I want to see something different in the market, I'm going to have to go out and do it because if someone was going to do what I wanted to do, they would have done it by now. I understand that the light bulb moment of sorts came from a suitcase explosion. Can you talk me through it? (laughs) Indeed. The famous suitcase explosion. Um, Yes. So I was in the United States and this was after I had left L'Oreal and I was kind of exploring launching a brand. I had moved on to a new role that was more kind of in the startup space um, while I was figuring out 
what this brand was going to be. And that was my kind of ultimate goal was eventually to launch this brand and, and have this business. Um, and yeah, we were in New York and we went on, on a flight to go to Colorado and I had a chemical hair relaxer, like basically chemical hair straightening product in my suitcase. And it's kind of like a very toxic caustic product. And when I arrived in Colorado, we were essentially in the middle of nowhere. We were in the mountains somewhere. And I opened up my suitcase and this chemical relaxer had exploded over all of my stuff. And it was just like a white hot mess in my suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I didn't have access to get another straightener. And chemical straightening is something that you have to do every, you know, three to six months. It's like bleaching your hair. You have to top it up. Mm -hmm. um, and it was something that I had also done for 20 plus years of my life, like three or four times a year. Good God. Yes. And so I was in this room with my exploded suitcase <laughs> and uh, no way to get another relaxer. And in that moment, I don't know if it was because I was in nature or because, you know, at the time I had been transitioning a lot of my skincare products um, and body care products to things that were more, you know, quote unquote natural um, and realized that I was still putting this product on my head um, and my scalp, which is also skin, of course. People and forget probably, that. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. Mm. Um, and it is a really kind of absorbent part of the body as well. Um, and so I just decided to stop. I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to stop relaxing my hair. I think I'm going to go back to my natural texture, which at the time I actually had no idea what it was. The only time I had sure. seen my hair normally was like when I was super, super young. So I had photos of it. And then when I would maybe take out my braids, to go into another style. So I'd take out my braids before relaxing my hair again to then like do a weave or do whatever. And so when you take it out of braids or anything, um, it was just like an Afro texture, which sometimes like I still wear it like that, but also when my hair is wet, it's curly. And I actually had no idea that having Afro textured hair meant that my hair was curly, <laughs> which yeah. is actually a pretty, it's actually a pretty common um, misconception even for people who have Afro textured hair. Um, and so I went on this, journey that I just had no idea what it would entail um, of going back to my natural texture and, you know, realized pretty quickly that I was going to need to go and buy products that were designed for my texture of hair because my hair had technically been either in protective styles or straight my entire life. I used, you know, just general products that were designed for all types of hair and, and right. mostly straight hair. And I thought, no, my hair's quite dense. It's quite thick. I'm going to have to get like proper products. Um, and that's when I went to, you know, the, the hair care aisle, which in the US, in some spaces, it is designated as the multicultural aisle. So it's very separate. Okay. Um, and I was just really, really shocked at the kind of state of everything and really felt like I had gone in a time machine. And I was back in the 90s, back in my mum's salon, because we used to import a lot of these products over to Perth from the United States. And I was thinking about all the brands and products I was buying in other categories and how contemporary and cool they were and how they were part of my personal identity and all of those things. And I just could not find anything in this space that I could buy into in that same way. Um, and it was also incredibly complicated 
and I was very overwhelmed. I was like, I have no idea where to start, what to buy, all of these products that are, you know, kind of doing the same thing, but called like 40,000 different names. And I literally just wanted to know how to wash my hair. (laughs) Yeah, which you would think is not a huge ask. Right, right. And you would think it's such a simple thing. It's It's washing your hair. That's probably the most simple part of your routine. But for me, I just had no idea what to do. And all of the hair education that you receive as part of mainstream culture is designed for straight hair. And so I had to go on this entire process of like figuring out one, how to wash my hair, like what kind of routine, what kind of products, what kind of methods. Um, And I just thought, you know what, this could be really simple. It doesn't have to be this complicated. Um, And that's when I went away and started kind of looking at one, the market data to see what people were doing, what they were buying. And I was like, is this just me? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> um, and at that time, relaxer sales had declined around 40%, just under 40% okay. over a five-year period. Um, and more people were buying shampoos and conditioners and treatments. Um, and just very anecdotally that there were so many other women doing this too, going from having relaxed their hair their whole life to back to the natural texture um, and it's called the natural hair movement and it was alive and popping back then. And it still is now even more so. Um, and I could just see that there was this opportunity to create this brand and this product that not only did I want, <laughs> but that I felt other people would want to. I mean, there's that disconnect because you're asking the question, like, how do I wash my hair? Whereas my biggest thing was like, should I like get a fringe? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the biggest issue I've ever had to grapple with. Yeah. And it really does speak to like personal experience because mm. I had no intention of starting a hair care brand whatsoever. You know, I left L'Oreal knowing I wanted to start a brand. It was going to be makeup, wasn't it? It was going to be makeup, yes, because the whole intention was really to kind of be part of pushing the industry towards a much more diverse future and being able to provide a better brand experience, better product experience for women of colour because these big companies weren't doing it. Um, But I I really didn't know what the brand or anything was going to be But at the time, you know, makeup really was the most immediate need because there was nothing available. Brands really weren't providing the right shades or even the right number of shades. Um, And this was pre-Fenty. So it's like A, B, B, C. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I was playing around with different makeup concepts and wanting to launch a brand that had hundred foundation shades and all of these things. And um, it wasn't until I actually had this experience of the relaxer exploding and then deciding to go back to my natural texture that I was like, wow, there is a real problem here. So I'm pretty sure you've said previously that there was about three or four years in between conceptualizing bread through to physically launching I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear more about that time because it's one thing to have the idea of course but then how do you go about finding a manufacturer sourcing packaging all of these boxes that need to be ticked before you actually have a product Mm, yeah it was a really long process I think for a few reasons one was really wanting to like figure out the product assortment Um, and really nail that down. And then two was also monetary. Like I still needed to work full time. I still needed to be able to support myself so that I could continue kind of like building out the brand before going to market. 
Um, and then, you know, finding the right suppliers, etc. Like a lot of it took time. And I think that I also really wanted to be in a good position when we launched um, to not just be kind of like throwing everything out to the wind yeah. and like hoping that it sticks. And so um, part of my strategy really was to secure a retail partnership before we had launched. Um, and I really wanted that to be Sephora. Um, I could kind of see that, you know, hair was getting a bit of traction, but there really wasn't a great assortment for textured hair. And I knew that this woman who by that point was shopping Fenty in makeup in Sephora, um, didn't really have an option in hair. Um, and I I wanted to be that brand that when she walked into a Sephora, she would see us and, um, know that we're for her. Um, and that she now had this option in hair because she doesn't doesn't typically go into a Sephora to shop for hair care. Mm. Um, and we really wanted to be part of the strategy to change that. Um, and so, yeah, that took, that took time. And I think that it, it wasn't just that from a functional perspective and a strategic perspective, but also there's a lot of doubt that comes along the way where you're yeah. like, oh, well now this brand's launched. Maybe I don't need to launch my brand anymore. Or maybe this is the wrong approach or all of those things that you go back and forth on every single day. Um, and so many moments where you get to a point where you're like, oh, should I just leave it? <laughs> yep. we, just, has the market moved on? Like, should we just do something different? Um, but I just couldn't let it go. I just really couldn't let it go. I just had to keep going step by step, even if it was like really little steps that ended up taking a much longer time. Um, but I also think the blessing of taking that long was that I really felt by the end of it, so confident that nobody else was going to do this because I yeah. thought, well, I've missed the boat now. It's been years. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Well, no one's done it yet. Like they still haven't done it. And so I felt really confident that we could take really as long as we needed to, to get to market because nobody was going to do it. Now, where does the Sephora Accelerate program factor into this timeline? And also for those who aren't aware of it, what is Sephora Accelerate? Yeah. So Sephora Accelerate is kind of like an incubation program that Sephora runs for small brands or new brands um, that have a female founder. Yeah. Um, And it's a program they've been running for a few years. It's run out of the US um, office and by the US team. And it's essentially a way for them to support the community of female founders in beauty, to really take brands under their wings um, and give us advice and mentorship. And for my cohort and the cohorts cohorts before mine, um, it's basically like you do a boot camp, um, you get to have a Sephora mentor, um, you go through so many different aspects of your business and they give you advice and guidance along the way. And then you go away, you all work on your stuff and you come back um, a few months later and take part in a demo day where you get to present your business um, to a room full of not just beauty executives, but also investors. Um, and it was the first year that they had opened applications to Australia-based founders. So I had known about the program from year one, mm-hmm. um, which at that time, I believe it was invite only. And then from the year after that, they started opening applications. But it was only ever open to, I think, the US, uh, Europe, um, maybe some parts of Asia. Um, and then, yeah, once I, I felt ready, it happened to be the time where they were like, yep, Australia's taking part. Um, and so got to apply and, and be part of that cohort, which was, yeah, honestly, like completely game changing. 
Now, at that time, did you have the name yet? Because I heard an old, (laughs) old interview where you mentioned what the brand was originally going to be called and then in more recent interviews you have glossed over that. So I'll let you decide (laughs) if you want to say what that name was. But, you know, up to you how much you would like to share, but where did the name Bread come from? Is that what you were presenting to this group of people? Yeah, did I actually say it once in an interview? You have. I I go real deep with this. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've said it archives. (laughs) offline didn't realize that it's been recorded and on you know the webosphere um yeah it was a completely different name actually I'm I believe I'm gonna have to go and double check but I do believe the first time I presented it to a Sephora buyer because this is a whole other tangent but in addition to Sephora Accelerate I had managed to weasel my way into a meeting with a Sephora hair care buyer before we had oh, wow. product before we launched, et cetera. Um, and I can't remember exactly if it was the old name or the new name. I will have to double check. Hopefully it was the new name. <laughs> um, but yeah, it went by a, a different name for some time, uh, but it was a very like trendy name. It was of I, the time. It was I'll, very I'll of the that. time. So of the time. And I didn't pick it because it was of the time. I picked it for the meaning of it yeah um but it just meant that you know within a couple of weeks someone else had already trademarked it and I was like no Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and I I actually didn't think that the brand could exist without the name at the time that was one of the moments where I was like should we pack this up (laughs) (laughs) good god imagine if you had (laughs) um and so I really had to kind of go back to the drawing board and think about what I was creating and ultimately, we were trying to create the staples of your hair care wardrobe, like the basics and mm-hmm. your must-haves. And so I started thinking about what staples are in other categories. Um, and of course, bread is a staple in food. Uh, and I loved it. I loved just the simplicity of like bread. Um, you know, I think bread and butter is used a little bit in beauty, but bread on its own, I felt was really strong. Um, and then also having the extended name of Bread Beauty Supply, which is kind of just a nod to this, you know, old school shopping channel um, or like, you know, shopping, what do you call them? When it's like a... <laughs> I mean, you're doing something with your hands that I just don't, I can't, I have no idea. <laughs> not not channel as in like TV channel, but a shopping, you can shop online you can shop in a retail store. You know know what I mean? I do. Yeah, let's go with channel. Yeah, we'll go with channel. Um, Of the beauty supply store where a lot of black women shop for their hair care needs and I kind of want to have that extended name as a little bit of a hint of where we're going in the future and what we want to provide like long term, which is, you know, a lot more than just hair. Um, so yeah, that's the name origin. It's the perfect name. I'm glad the other one got a trademark. <laughs> Not that it's like my call, but <laughs> I'm thrilled about it. Oh, I'm thrilled too. Don't worry. <laughs> um, you've mentioned that you, I mean, in your words, weaseled your way into some meetings. I would love to spend a bit of time on the process of securing investment because I feel like, so. I mean, women in particular, but so many people are reluctant to talk about money because it's, I guess it's not sexy and there's all this talk about like chase your dreams, make it happen, do it now. But then it's Mm. as though seeking investment doesn't fit into that 
very glossy narrative because it's a chunky kind of subject. You secured investment from the same fund that invested in Glossier skims, like just a couple of small (laughs) up-and-comers. What would your advice be to anyone who is looking to launch a business and is unsure of where to start as far as investment goes? Yeah, I think if you're at the very beginning of that journey of thinking about taking on investment, the best advice I would have is to really kind of immerse yourself in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me... I was lucky in that I was working in a role that was very much in the startup scene. I was seeing a lot of female founders, speaking to a lot of founders and hearing a lot of stories of businesses that had fundraised. Is this with Greta? Uh, so it was with Cheryl first at League of oh, Extraordinary Women. Amazing. And then Greta after that. Two geniuses. So both, yes, exactly. Both um, roles where, you know, I really got to be behind the scenes of kind of the workings of that, um, which I think is important. It's not necessary, but I think it's still important to kind of get yourself familiar with the space, whether Mm -hmm. it's like reading all of the articles about consumer brands or beauty brands that have taken on investment and doing a bit of digging into like what that looks like and what the process is like and how those deals are structured. Um, And then also just seeing, you know, what the current industry knowledge is and what people are talking about. So whether it's reading TechCrunch um, or even just being on like VC Twitter, which, you know, is not a specific channel, but just like go on Twitter, find a couple of investors to follow, and then the content will start popping up. Um, And I think that that's probably like the best place to start is really just getting your head around this space and what it means and what it means to take on venture capital. Um, There are a ton of different um, deck examples online. Not a lot of them are for beauty though, which is kind of difficult. And so... Mm -hmm. I did take a lot of those with a grain of salt. I looked at, you know, the the bones of it, which is like the key details that you want to include in your deck. But then the way that I structured my deck was just far more about the narrative and, you know, making sure those key points were in there. But I structured it just the way that I wanted to, which was, you know, in order to communicate the story that I was trying right. to get across, which is like, here, here's where the industry is. Here's why there's a gap. Here's what we want to fill it with. Here's the numbers. Here's what we're aiming for. This is what we need. Um, and I think once you're at that point, just being really clear about how much you need to raise, what it's for, and when you want to close. Because I flailed around for about two years, just being on the periphery of like meeting with investors or, you know, taking introductions and kind of telling people what I was doing. But it was never a firm, like, this is what I'm raising and this is when I'm closing. And I think part of that was because I wasn't sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm not quite ready yet. I'm not quite there yet. And so once uh, we did get to the stage where I felt ready, it became much clearer, like how much we would need and exactly when we had to close because we were then on a deadline. It was like, we're launching with Sephora. We are closing on this date and (laughs) we must have your money by then. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of where I would start. Um, And then also just looking into the different types of funding that's available. Venture capital is very much about like quick and high growth. Um, so just make sure that that's what you want. Um, otherwise, there are other options available. You can look at private equity if you're kind of, you know, a few years down the track or, um, yeah, just just different ways to fund the business if venture capital isn't the road that you want to go down. And I will say it is like having a boss. So if you are the kind of mm. entrepreneur that has, you're doing what you're doing because you don't want a boss, then don't <laughs> take VC money. <laughs> don't get yourself a boss. That's it. That'll do it almost every time. Exactly. (laughs) 
You've mentioned um, taking meetings and like just telling people the story, which of course you have to do. But I was having a conversation with my mother just this weekend and she was saying, oh, your generation is so good at putting yourselves out there and talking to the right people when you want to make things happen. And she mentioned that she wouldn't know how to even strike up that conversation. And I replied with something very unhelpful that was like, I don't know, we just we just kind of do it. And then I thought, okay, you know who might have a more articulate answer to this? <laughs> so be as broad or as specific as you like, but what would be your advice to anyone who's struggling with that networking and introduction side of things? Yeah, I think, and I don't know if it's a general generational thing or like an individual thing, but I think that um, for me at least, I'll speak to, to how I feel about it, which is that, I often need permission to do things. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't probably be the kind of person that would just send an email or try and take a side door to do something unless I had heard that someone else had done it first. Okay. Because it kind of gives you that permission to go like, oh, is that what everybody's doing? I guess that's okay. You know, and I think that that's ingrained in us from like school. It's like, these are the rules and you have to stick to these rules and this is how it works and you'll get this outcome definitely whereas like when you're in the real world and I was a very like type a like teacher's pet kind of student and so can relate I had to, yeah I'm sure um I had to kind of break out of that in a sense and just get to a point where I had almost zero fear about the outcome and so if I wanted to send a cold email um, to get an introduction or even ask someone to make an introduction or whatever it might be, um, I had to get to a point where the either outcome would be okay. So either it's going to be something amazing, it's going to be what you want, or they're going to say no and nothing will come of it. And that outcome doesn't really matter. Like if someone says no, like that's the end, it's not the end of the world. Like that's, you just move on to the next thing. Um, and so I think perhaps maybe as a generation, we have a lot less fear um, around outcomes. Like we're more willing to kind of put ourselves out there and kind of bend the rules a little bit um, if we need to. And part of that may be because we're so much more exposed, um, yeah. especially through social media. And, and you get to hear more about what goes on behind the scenes versus back in the days. Like you could find any business story almost online and find out that, oh, this person did that or this person did that and kind of take nuggets of wisdom from those um, stories and apply it to your own because there really, there isn't a blueprint. Like no one story is going to be the same as someone else's, but there are certainly like tactics and things that you can adopt to your own business story. I love that point about permission because I was thinking it being a generational thing is, as you've said, a lot to do with social media and just the internet in general, if you will. But that's yeah. because it's like you can you can see what other people are doing. Nothing feels particularly out of reach anymore. Yeah, exactly. And even people don't feel as out of reach. Mm. Like you can message someone on LinkedIn that, you know, perhaps back in the day you wouldn't have been able to access um, without having their email or even then like trying to get in touch with them through email. And I think now that we're in the space that we are, from what's happening globally. <laughs> oh, that? Yeah. You, oh, that, no, that the pandemic that shall not be named. <laughs> um, people have become a little more accessible, even more. Yeah. 
because oh my God, we're this constantly podcast. online. I'm just emailing people like, hi, can I yell questions at you for an hour? And they're like, yeah, definitely. How's tomorrow? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's become, you know, travel really increased globalization, but it's almost like the lack of travel has increased it even more yeah. because people are so much more willing to do things across, you know, country boundaries. And it's like, yeah. cool, we'll just find a time across time zones and, you know, and, and it works. So, yeah, I think now more than ever, um, even though it's not ideal because you can't meet people in person, um, you can still get, you know, access to people um, in a different way. On that note, on not being able to talk to people face-to-face but still being connected, what have been the challenges of launching a brand while you're in Australia into the US? I mean, particularly just given the time that we find ourselves Mm. in. You can't just pop in and be like, hey, guys, how's it going? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's been a massive, massive challenge. Um, And I have always been the kind of person who enjoys working from home. Yeah. Um, I'm technically an introvert because I I get depleted from being around other people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, having said that, I think that there's just so much that comes from being in an office with people and being able to really just quickly make decisions and and get information across the entire team as it's happening in real time versus having to debrief everyone and communicate with multiple people about changes and things. And it can become really sluggish. Um, But I also think that, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. And so we've really just had to push on in the best way that we can. Um, And really just, it kind of has given me an opportunity to assess, like, could this business work if I'm based here? Um, and I think the answer to that is long-term no, <laughs> but we're doing, what we can. <laughs> we're doing what we can with what we have now. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like everyone's working from home right now. So regardless of where I am, the only benefit that I would have from, you know, being physically there right now is being in the right time zone. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of it. So um, yeah, it, it has been a challenge, but at the end of the day, you just you just have to do what you have to do, and that's what we've done. <laughs> mm. Another challenge while we're on this fun, uplifting Love part challenges. of the conversation, <laughs> launching a product that is so different to everything else on the market. I love talking to founders about this because, of course, it's exciting to see a brand innovate and do something different, but then there's a great deal of education that has to come with that because you're convincing a beauty consumer, many of whom are loyal, that, okay, here's why you should defer from what you know. So I would love to know how that process has gone for you and what the reception was like on launch. Yeah. Um, It's been so interesting because I think for us, like even just being in hair and what we've learned over the last six months is that, which I can't believe it's been six months, by the way, I'm still telling people, yeah, we launched a month ago. Um, (laughs) I still think Easter was three weeks ago. Oh my, well, it's like just, yeah, I can't wrap my head around time right now. Um, So we are, I guess, like learning what the kind of life cycle is and the path to purchase for hair and then specifically for this customer in hair and hair is I mean like things have gone really well and and I love where we're at and our partnership with Sephora has been amazing um but it's such a different category like people are so much less willing 
to experiment in hair than they are with skin or makeup. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to, one, pull people away from drugstore because that's, you know, where the majority of people still buy their hair care is from like a pharmacy or grocery or whatever it might be um, versus in prestige, like retail right. or even online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're kind of trying to shift people away from that into prestige uh, in the way that they shop for their skin and their makeup. Um, but then also it's like, it's such a personal thing too. Like you can't just, it's not like buying a new lip balm, but you're like, yeah, this is okay. Like if you get a bad hair product, it can like ruin your entire day or week. Or mm. And so it's much harder to convert people away from what they know. Um, unless you're doing something that is like really, really specific for um, like to treat certain conditions which for us right now we're not we're very much a um a routine specific brand like we're starting with wash day we want to give you like a really simple three-step routine um but having said that like a lot of our original thesis is proving to be true one that you know we are a hair care brand yes but we kind of want to exist in, in the spaces where you know hair might not be the main topic of conversation Um, and work with, you know, influencers or whoever who are, you know, not always talking about beauty or not always talking about hair. And then they will, you know, because they love the brand so much, they'll talk about us like organically. And that has been what is like converting for us. Um, It's just really being in the hands of people who genuinely love the brand and whose audiences really trust them. Um, And, you know, they don't have to be a hair influencer. <laughs> They're just yeah. a general, you know, influencer who has an audience that that believes what they say because they're they're trustworthy. Now, if research serves, Bread is only the eighth black owned beauty brand in Sephora and I think the third in the hair category. Aside from just black owned brands, there's not really all of that many that even cater to women of colour. You were talking pre and post Fenty. You would think that maybe that would be the catalyst to get everyone up and about, but obviously hasn't been the case. I'm not sure if this is a question that can even be answered and there's likely another hour-long discussion to be had on this alone, but you're certainly more qualified to speak on it than I am. But why do you think that so many brands are not just reluctant but not touching this space and extending their ranges to cater to more people and specifically to women of colour? Yeah, I think we're like the eighth or ninth. I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that, but <laughs> not there's not that many. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a very layered issue. Yeah. Um, one, I think it takes time for brands to completely reverse or, <laughs> you know, mm. fix their strategy and, and the way that they've always operated. Um, and two, I think there's also, unfortunately, a lot of fear around alienating their current base, which is, you know, a really poor excuse considering like if, you know, featuring more women or more people or more products that are catering to another audience um, puts you off, then (laughs) you're probably racist. So, um, yeah, I think that's unfortunate, but I do think that a lot of it can derive from that fear of, especially if it's for brands that are doing well, 
And they're like, well, what we've done has always worked. So why would Mm. we do this now? Which is very unfortunate. But I guess the blessing of that is that there are brands like Bread and so many other brands that are created by, um, you know, Black female founders or, you know, BIPOC founders that get an opportunity to enter the market in a way that actually serves this customer. Um, It just opens up an entire kind of white space opportunity, which is, you know, great for people who are starting out and really want to kind of get, their foot in the door with a brand that is more fit for today's consumer. Let's talk about the Bread Beauty Supply offering as it stands currently. Can you talk me through what's in there now? Yeah, so we started with um, Wash Day. wanted to be really deliberate about um, providing the products that would work across her routine from the very first step. So I didn't know how to wash my hair. I really wanted a simple solution for that. So I was like, we are starting with wash day, first and foremost, Um, which can often be a very time consuming process, especially if you have textured hair. It's like, it's called wash day. And that's because it can last up to a day. Um, And for me, when I was, yeah, definitely. Um, Again, it it just shows my, I mean, firstly, (laughs) ignorance, but secondly, like, what is this? I'm right. like, I might just I might just cut this off today and like that's it's simple. Yes, and that's what I was going to touch on earlier actually around the whole kind of like personal experience thing. I have no idea what the process of tanning is like. I don't know okay. how to use a fake tan. I don't know what the pain points are. I would have absolutely zero idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that's one thing I always think about. I'm like, okay, it makes sense why nobody does this because you really have to go through it yourself. <laughs> like I cannot launch a tanning product. So I, I wouldn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we started with wash day um, and I really just wanted to simplify that process i was like why is this taking so long why are there twenty thousand products that i need to use why is this such a complicated thing um and spent a lot of time just going through different routines and found one that really worked um and built our core assortment around that and you know pulled out the ingredients that i knew weren't being helpful um making sure all of our formulas were curly girl friendly um so that they wouldn't just work for textured hair but for all curl types Um, And so the wash kit has three main products in it, starting with hair wash, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like this milky, like liquid marshmallow texture of a hair cleanser. (laughs) Um, And it was really inspired by the gentle cleansers that I was seeing in skincare. Um, I knew that I wanted a product that was somewhere in between a regular shampoo and a co-wash, which is like a conditioning wash. Um, I was co-washing and I really didn't like it because I didn't feel like I was getting a proper clean. And then when I would go back to a regular shampoo or hair cleanser, um, even if it said it was moisturizing, it would just strip my hair bare. And then I'd have to spend another hour detangling it because it was just so dry. Um, and so I wanted a product that would give me the result of a co-wash, which is like super moisturized, but still give me a really good clean. So it's semi-foaming. Um, and it is really like, I, I didn't see it. I love the product, but I never saw it coming. It's like the dark horse of our entire range. It's got like hundred percent five-star reviews. We've won, I think we're up to four awards now for yes. hair wash. <laughs> oh. Um, and you know, the fragrance, because it's like a milky texture, I really wanted it to smell like Fruit Loop cereal milk. Um, the fragrance. As one does. Fun. 
and it is amazing. Um, and you know, the feedback that we've had from that is like more more than one person has said that it has changed their life. Which, like, for a shampoo, yes, that's what you want to hear. Yeah. So that's step one. Um, step two is our hair mask, which is really creamy and sumptuous. It's infused with Australian cactus plum made in Australia. Uh, and that can be used as, um, if you're washing your hair less often. So like once a week, once every 10 days, you just use it like you would a normal conditioner, you apply it, leave it on for a bit, rinse it out. Um, but if you're washing your hair more often, you would use it sparingly. So like every now and then as your kind of deep treatment mask, um, and that's like 12 ounces of product. We know that people need a lot of conditioner, especially when you have a lot of yeah. hair. Uh, so like 350 mLs, which is um, a lot more than like a standard deep conditioner. Mm. And then uh, the third is our hair oil, um, which is also infused with Australian kakadu plum. It's completely multi-purpose. So you can use it as a pre-wash treatment, um, which is amazing. And it'll just give you like super, super soft hair. Um, or you can use it after you've washed on your wet hair. You can apply it to your hair in between wash days. Um, I like to say that that is like a lip gloss, but for your hair, it really is uh-huh. kind of like a go-to like daily oil. Um, and that as well won an Allure Best of Beauty uh, for 2020, which I think we'd only been out for about two months, two, two and a half months. Outrageous. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah God. and then it also comes with the bread puff which is yes. our scrunchie our lovely satin scrunchie which i mean people love because it's like the the elastic is really strong but it's super stretchy so if you have like braids or like you have really really big hair like you'll be able to kind of go over like more than once like two or three times um and we went with satin because one, we felt like the finish was still super premium, um, even compared to some like silk brands that you find on the market. And two, our range is cruelty free. And in the process of figuring out, you know, accessories and what we wanted to do with scrunchies, because I was using them all the time, um, discovered that silk isn't cruelty free. And so yeah. um, we wanted to be able to provide an option to people who wanted a cruelty free vegan option there and um yeah I love them and people love them which is amazing (laughs) they're the best yeah they are the best (laughs) you have spent the the better part of the last four years working on bread and have obviously been involved in beauty for much much longer over the last say five or so years what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the beauty industry Um, I think, I mean, obviously diversity has really taken a front seat um, across the entire industry. Um, I think that's probably the biggest change. I guess the other change that I've seen and kind of why we've done bread the way that we've done it is really consumers taking their own education into their own hands. So, you know, we saw that happen in makeup where, you know, it wasn't necessarily, you didn't necessarily have to buy a makeup artist brand to find good makeup. Um, And then skincare didn't have to be a dermatologist brand um, for you to kind of trust in it and and love it and people really self-educating about what to use in their skin. Because, I mean, for the majority of our lives, it's just been like, yeah, put a cream on or whatever. (laughs) And we all really, really. moisturize. It's that easy. (laughs) We really all went down the rabbit hole of skincare to get to where we are. Uh, And I think the same is happening in hair. 
especially now even more so with so many salons having to be closed because of COVID, um, people taking that education into their own hands and there's still such a long way to go in hair. Um, and, you know, we're hoping over the next couple of months to be able to really bring our education piece to the forefront because there's a lot people don't know about hair. We're never taught anything. The only experts that we ever kind of interface with are hairstylists. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think hairstylists are amazing, but at the same time, you know, depending on what salon you go to, they sell certain products. And so they're the ones that they're going to sell you. Um, and so being able to kind of take that on yourself and discover what works for you based on your research or whatever it might be, um, I think is only going to increase in hair and really, really explode the category because it's still tiny. Yeah, so Salon is still such a massive channel and I think that, you know, the growth that we'll see online, especially now, um, will be huge. I was going to ask what changes we can expect to see, but the hair explosion. (laughs) The hair explosion, absolutely. And I think, like, you know, all industries are cyclical. So it's, you know, right now it's hair and I think that's going to continue for a bit and then we're going to swing back to makeup because apparently we're back in our own 20s and so, like, lots of makeup and heavy makeup will be back with a vengeance. You can go back to your black eyebrows, blue eyeshadow, red lipstick. Full Exactly. It's perfect. (laughs) This has worked out really well across the board. 100%. You know, and then, you know, it all kind of comes back around eventually, so... I think we'll just see more of the same. (laughs) Great. (laughs) My final question, what is next for Bread Beauty Supply? So much. So much is next. Um, And I'm really excited. I'm really excited for 2021. I've been saying to people, um, you know, friends that, 2020 we were all just like flailing about had no idea what was going on and what we were doing and now 2021 is like the year of like decisive action um and a lot of things happening because now like as much as we don't know what's going to happen we already know what's going to happen and that is that you know everything's going to be as it is right now which is you can't go anywhere (laughs) don't plan for anything absolutely not (laughs) you know in the knowing that we can't plan that is kind of a plan too it's like cool just assume that you can't you can't go overseas assume that um, you know, people are still going to be shopping online a lot. Um, just assume all of those things and that's kind of the best way to plan. Um, but, you know, we've got so many new products coming out, which is exciting and, and also daunting because, you know, we're going to get to the end of hair soon because, you know, we want to maintain our, you know, brand position, which is that it's an edited routine. We can only launch so many products before that routine is exhausted um and that's what we'll stick to we're not just going to launch more hair care products for the sake of launching them it's like no cool once you get to the end of that edited routine that's it and so we have to you know start thinking about expansion and and all of those things and then um you know getting into the hands of more international customers which is very exciting that was Maver Hyde founder and ceo of bread beauty supply which you can find on Instagram at Bread Beauty Supply. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.